Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly sideshow where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Thanisharya Rajendran. And I'm Jun Kim. And today we're going to get up to date on everything from brain capacity to earthworms in another discussion on the sidelines. So Jun, what do you have for us today? So let's start in the world of medicine and disease because there's something very cool that you know scientists came up to developing. So there's a lot of like diseases or conditions that have to do with the immune system. And one of the most common ones is definitely something like cancer where it's an immune system um, malfunction. You know, even something like arthritis is what we call an autoimmune disease where the immune system starts attacking itself. So what scientists started to do was like, all right, how about if we want to target these specific conditions, if we want to target something that is already broken, like the immune system not functioning properly, we need a molecule or a drug that is able to completely avoid the immune system. So the new discovery is something called dendromers. Uh, I don't know where the name comes from. It's completely random to, to me, but I, I'm sure there's a long history of naming that makes sense to a professional out there. But a dendromer is basically a human-made molecule. They're massive spheres with tentacles coming out of them. And by massive, I mean massive in terms of like molecules. Uh, so each <laughs> tentacle is actually one nanometer apart from the, the next tentacle over, which means this is a million times smaller than a millimeter. Like one nanometer is a million times smaller than a millimeter. So when I said massive sphere, that was probably a little bit misleading there. <laughs> That's a bit of an over-exaggeration. Yeah. But... <laughs> massive in the atomic world, I'll say. Yes. And within this, what it can do is avoid the immune system. It's specifically a part called the complement system. And the complement system does things like activate inflammation, activate our immune cells to start attacking foreign particles. And to put it simply, the way this works is there's a foreign pattern. It responds to the foreign pattern, and then it tries to destroy it. But interestingly, the dendromal, dendromer tentacles are too small. Like it's just all one nanometer apart, meaning apparently the immune system actually can't pick up on it very well. So it avoids the immune system. That is so cool. So what are they using this for? Yeah. So, so that's the real big question. Why would you want to avoid the immune system? Like uh, the thing that I always think about is like, what if a bacteria was able to like create a, their own dendrobar? I, I don't know. And hopefully that's not possible, but, uh, but the reason they want to do this is there's a lot of immune system diseases, like I mentioned, like cancer and arthritis, and drugs are ineffective oftentimes because the immune system is malfunctioning or there's too much inflammation. Uh, so like drugs can't even get into the area. The medication cannot even like get like function because it gets stopped by the immune system before it can even get there. So if that's the case, why not completely avoid the immune system so that the new medication can actually start having an effect or actually get to the, to the area uh, where the tumor is or get to the area that's specifically uh, affected by the condition? And that's what scientists are thinking with this new dendromer discovery to try and uh, you know, help these tricky conditions by avoiding the immune system and attacking the problem at its root. Yeah, that sounds so cool because like when you really think about it, when it's a cancer or when you say like there's a lot of immune response going on, 
I imagine like just this block of concrete because cancer cells mm-hmm. don't behave like normal cells. Exactly. That's why people like when they have like big tumors, you would have to do surgery to remove exactly. it. Exactly. But if you have something like this, that that is actually pretty cool. Yeah. It it bypasses our own defense system to help us survive from something that's killing us from inside kind of it's kind of that's also very scary to think about that we can create something that just our natural defense system can't even pick up on exactly which is uh maybe concerning hopefully this is not a technology (laughs) used for bad purposes (laughs) yeah but so so far it sounds like it's in the right direction and it sounds like wonderful science absolutely and now on the road of wonderful science There was this recent news and paper published, actually, on using a cocktail of drugs, so different drugs, to help frogs regrow amputated legs. Oh, wow. So, like, I know that, like, lizards can, like, regrow their limbs uh, at will, but I I assume that this is, like, a a massive, massive uh, discovery for the world of amphibians, I guess? This is massive because, okay, like you said earlier, like lizards, salamanders, and even like starfish can regrow limbs. So we've seen that and it's in biology, we studied that. But adult frogs, like as humans, when we lose a limb, we can't regrow it. We don't have the necessary pathways and proteins needed to do that. So essentially, they use these frogs as like a model to see whether or not they can cause an organism that usually can't regrow its limb to be able to do so. So this was a huge study done in Tufts University in Medford for in like their developmental biology department, basically, where they had a sample size or about 115 adult frogs. And then what they did was that they amputated the right back leg of all of these frogs around the knee and and then separated them into three different groups. So one group didn't receive the treatment. One group just had like the device. So the device itself is like a silicone sleeve that you put over the amputated limb. Okay. And then the last group had the device attached to it along with a cocktail of drugs. So these drugs are like different hor- growth hormones, inflammatory reduction, um, chemicals, things like that, that to help promote that nerve building and whatnot. And they found that over the span of 18 months, some of these frogs in the latter group that I just mentioned were able to fully regrow their limb. Now, granted, their toes themselves were a bit stubby, but like they had the almost infrastructure and like the nerves running through where in their leg, unlike the control group, which only had like a muscle growth or something like that. So it was really, really significant. Everyone was surprised. Well, not surprised per se, but excited. It's new science. Even being able to grow, like, as you said, if you can't get like all the intricacies, I mean, this is still a massive, massive discovery when it comes to being able to maybe translate this to other animals, maybe humans in the future, but that's, that's really awesome. Another exciting part of this is that since they have such positive results, 
they're moving to the next step where I don't, I'm not entirely sure if this is the same group of researchers or if this is an independent group, but they're going into mice models now. So they also found that since this worked in frogs, why don't we have a new model organism in mice? But this time, instead of using the cocktail and the device itself, they're going to add the component of electricity because apparently electricity also helps with limb growth. And I didn't know that. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with nerves and like conducting signals. But honestly, other than that, that's, that's pretty cool to find out. That's, that's very interesting. Exactly. So hopefully this mice model works out great. And what we're hoping for in the future is that we would have some kind of medication that may or may not work in humans because the orthopedic world can really benefit from these kinds of inventions. Right. Because the mice model would also be a mammal, right? So we're just one step closer to that end goal. That's so cool. Yeah. So before we get on to the next story, I need to confess that I, I don't actually get enough sleep. And unfortunately, and I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, have a guess at this. Uh, how many Canadians would you say report that they don't get enough sleep? I really like want to say like 90% because like every person I ask and every friend I talk to say they're always lacking sleep and so am I. Yeah, honestly, it's actually substantially lower than 90%. Really? Uh, it's one in three adults. One in three adults uh, say that they are not getting enough sleep but that still is a lot of people 33 percent of the population maybe maybe the statistic is different for like people in school uh like people who are under 18 people who are in their 20s i i don't actually know which age group this was maybe this is like actual statistics being pulled with like questionnaires and like amount of hours instead of people just saying like oh i didn't get enough yeah exactly yeah so (laughs) with that finding in general there's always the question, how can I get better sleep? How can I get more sleep? And the world of exercise uh, research always changes, but this is as of March 2022, so as recent as it gets, which is when the podcast is being released. Uh, they said and tried to compare, is aerobic exercise or uh, basically uh, weight training, but they call it resistance training in general, uh, better for getting sleep? So. What does either of that mean? So aerobic exercise is your classic cardio. So things like the treadmill, the Stairmaster, and your resistance training is weights, like using your body weight for push-ups, squats, uh, that kind of stuff. So what they were trying to look for is, and also I forgot to mention that sleep is really important for things. Uh, it's a preventative factor for things like heart disease. Uh, obviously feeling less tired throughout the day is awesome. It helps with like heart health, cardiovascular health. So what they wanted to find out was which is better, aerobic or uh, the the weight training or the resistance training. So they tested four groups. They had a resistance training only. They had an aerobic tr- like training only. They had a group do both, and then they had a group with no exercise at all. So do you want to take a guess on which groups, if any, had better quality of sleep? Probably the one who did a mixture of both. Yeah, that, that's probably a very fair guess to make. So yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. So the mixture of both had better quality of sleep, but also the resistance only group. So the weight training group also saw better sleep. And interestingly, the aerobic only group, like the cardio group and no exercise group, both, both of them didn't see significant changes. So their summary or big conclusion or takeaway from this was resistance training plays a big factor in increasing quality of sleep. 
Now, they didn't necessarily say like length of sleep or like how how like consistent any of this is. It was a very general questionnaire on quality of sleep, but you know, this still is factors or data that is very valuable to know about. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask you, like what constitutes better sleep, you know? Yeah, so I th I think they did a questionnaire and the way they do it it's self-reported quality of sleep, which is just things like do you feel less tired throughout the day? Do you feel refreshed when you wake up in the morning? So, you know, this isn't necessarily a a very statistical science, uh, but you know, I mean, even if someone just feels better, I feel like that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine like, well, any form of exercise, really, when you do it, you get tired and then you fall asleep. But like, it's interesting to see like just di how different forms of exercise can have different effects on sleep, because physically, obviously it does. But like mentally and like just things like that, you don't really think about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And about things we don't really think about, how often in a day you think about earthworms? Uh, on average, uh, just just over zero times a day. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I don't really think about it, earthworms as much unless we're in the spring and I happen to see one on the sidewalk. But when I was going through the news articles earlier, I came across this article of like how earthworms can actually be used to replace many synthetic fertilizers so as we know earthworms a big thing they're in the ground and like they help improve the quality of soil so we always thought of this as like a very slow process where they're helping with the structure of the soil not necessarily as like this rapid thing where as long as you have earthworms something good's gonna happen to your crop so what scientists found at the University College Dublin is that it is a much more rapid process than we were initially thinking about because earthworms in the soil, as they move around, they produce this mucus that contains nitrogen. And this nitrogen is being directly used up by the plants to grow and like um, make food and so forth. So they wanted to see how fast is this exactly happening and like how extreme is this process. So they decided to um, use stable isotopes that were labeled. So basically these are nitrogens in the earthworms that are labeled. So when we use certain devices, we can track where these nitrogen ends up in. It's like a nice experimental procedure and you get to see things at a more molecular level. Right. It's, it's like the nitrogen tracker. <laughs> exactly. So what they found in, is that in their experimental setting, the earthworms, as they move around, they were producing this nitrogen in their mucus, which was then taken up by seedlings that were on top of the soils. Mm -hmm. And when these seedlings sprouted and start to grow, they were also being consumed by green flies. And the cool thing is they were able to track the nitrogen from the earthworms to the green flies in the span of just under 24 hours. Oh, wow. So it's just cycling throughout the entire ecosystem just within a day. Yeah. And you don't really think about that because like we always think like oh in the soil things like die decompose and nitrogen carbon gets broken down and 
this is generational, but no, this is actually way faster than like we think about. Now, granted, those there are microbial cycles involved and things like that, but in the earthworm track, for such slow animals, they have a very fast and significant role. That's really so, good. Yeah, what they're saying is that farmers or like in the agriculture industry in general should look into using earthworms as a replacement for some artificial and synthetic fertilizers because the moment you use a lot of synthetic fertilizers when your plants don't really need it it causes the nitrogen and the chemicals to end up in like groundwater and it gets flown away and that causes a lot of contamination in nature that can be harmful in general and just like a lot of chemical runoff pollution as well right exactly a lot of pollution so we're not necessarily looking into like getting rid of synthetic fertilizers in general because there's only so much earthworms can do despite how amazing i just found out they were but having a nice balance of that would actually be beneficial for the agricultural sector wow all right well good to know next time i see an earthworm i'll make sure to thank it for all the hard work <laughs> work is doing <laughs> amazing so this one's a very interesting one, and I think it's an age-old question that we all sometimes ask, and it's, do we have a capacity when it comes to our brain limit? Like, is this very, like, computer-esque image of, I would like to have a new memory, do I have to delete one old memory so I can make room <laughs> for this new memory? Is that really true? Uh, and, and that's what I was reading up on today. And the, the answer is not as fun as you might suspect, but there are very interesting findings. So the answer is both yes and no. So I'll talk about the no part first. The no part is it's not that robotic. It's not literally just, oh, like, like I said before, let's take away two memories so I can make space for one large memory. Like that's not really how it works. We're not exactly like computers. But the yes part, while we might not have limited space like a computer does, we do have limit, limited capacity to use those memories. Uh, so the very interesting finding here is that they found that people who are over 65 years old, so people who've lived a long time and probably have a lot of memories, they have what they like to call cluttered memories. So what they mean by cluttered memories is all of these things conflict with each other. There's a vast amount of memories that someone will have flooding back at once. And that it's a little bit harder to discern what's actually going on and differentiate a bunch of memories because, you know, once you've lived 65 years, the likelihood that you have two similar memories or three similar memories uh, way higher than if you were maybe 20 years old. So I'll give a very clear example to kind of show what this might mean. So episodic memory is when you are recalling an event or something that happened, like remembering an episode. So older people are more likely to have cluttered memories and find it difficult to remember episodic memory. So like, what did they have for breakfast in the morning? Or what did they wear two days ago? Something like that. And the reason why, and the, here's the explanation for cluttered memories, it's harder for these people who are older to answer because they've just have thousands of more memories of doing these things. Like they have had thousands of more breakfasts. They have lived thousands of more days. And therefore they just, all of these memories kind of, clump together, clutter the brain. And it's not like we like have a capacity, but these all get mixed. And what that means is specific recall, like, ah, oh, here is what I ate for lunch three days ago, becomes harder and harder as you become older because all of the memories kind of just end up blurring together. So 
this is this is a simplified explanation, but this is the essence of what their findings were. So it's very interesting. That is very interesting to think about. I didn't know there were different categories of memories like that, scattered memories and so forth. That is so cool. Yeah, no, sometimes on a normal day, I don't remember what I had for lunch. So Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely interesting to think about. I have one more news story for us that is a little interesting, but not on land, but underwater instead. So the effect of noise on marine life. So when you think of noise in ocean, you just imagine like this quiet, like you're underwater, everything is blocked kind of situation, you know, just at peace. I think when of whale fact, noises yeah. <laughs> and whale sounds. <laughs> yeah. So whale sounds are, some people only think about whale sounds when you're underwater, really. And some people like don't associate, like I myself, I don't typically associate noise with the ocean because I just think about oh, it as being like this all encompassing quiet area. When in fact, there is so much noise constantly in the ocean. So yeah, a lot of animals, especially as you go deeper and deeper into the ocean, they all communicate through different modes of sound. So whale noises are a big one because there are people who dedicate their entire career into studying all these different kinds of whale noises. But besides whales, what other animals do you think are sensitive to sound or like can communicate through sound underwater? Uh, I mean, my my intuition is like the like belugas, sharks, like other similar <laughs> things to whales. That's all I can think of right now. <laughs> yeah, no, you're kind of on the right track. So a lot of like these marine lives and mammals in general typically can do that, but. Turtles apparently are sensitive to sound as well, like sea turtles. You don't really think about reptiles in the ocean and how they associate with sounds. Apparently, when there's excessive sound, like they can actually experience hearing loss. Wow, I've from, never like, thought of turtle hearing loss in my entire life. So that is a very interesting finding, yeah. Yeah, apparently the study was managed the study managed to find first evidence of actual underwater noise-induced hearing loss in turtle species. And I also never imagined under like underwater would be that loud either. <laughs> yeah. Like this well this article goes on to like explain like their experimental setup and things like that and how they studied it but when i think about underwater sounds i also think about artificial sounds that can be happening like mm, drilling right could be loud right that's actually very true so they were able to prove like with this evidence we're starting to show that Things that we never really thought about having an effect in these marine life could actually be more harmful than we expected. So temporarily here, temp these are all temporary hearing loss, but it can also apparently occur in like mammals, birds, fishes, reptiles. Now we're seeing it all across the board. So whenever we're trying to look at any sort of offshore oils, platforms or anything that involves drilling or interrupting the marine ecosystem that's something we should be considering 
actually. It's very interesting because, you know, we always talk about human pollution in the ocean and everything that's man-made, like the drilling and construction that happens. But we've never really thought about sound pollution created by humans. And that also just really messing up a lot of parts of the ecosystem, wildlife. That's that's crazy. We definitely need to have a more mindful approach when all these things exactly. happen. Exactly. Because when we talk about pollution, noise pollution is typically the, one of the last types of pollutions we talk about. Because, like, not only is this causing, like, hearing loss, but I feel like loud noises can also be a lot of stressful um, stressors in general for all these creatures. And how that can upset an ecosystem can be drastic. Thank you so much, June. Thank you. And thank you again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversation and some insightful answers to your questions about the signs impacting your world. If you want to learn more about sound, bacteria, or any of the other topics we talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Sci for Everyone, and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Tanishari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Grant.